Welcome everyone to our Advent series that begins today, the theme of which is the heavens declare as we consider the ways in which God has broken into history to bring us Christ and to change the world. And this morning, I'm privileged to share with you from one of my favorite texts in the Bible, which on the surface is also an incredibly boring text. When you begin Matthew, the New Testament, in verse 1, this is how the New Testament opens. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, and then name after name after name. Many people skip this section. I find it to be one of the most hopeful sections in all of Scripture. And so please join me in prayer, and then we'll look at this text together. Father, we want to thank you that we can gather and listen for your voice in this season when our longing is to receive hope from you, and as well our longing is in the midst of all that has unfolded in 2020 to be people of hope. And so my prayer, Father, is that your Holy Spirit would speak to us a word of hope today that we might receive, that we might be fortified, that we might live among one another as people of hope and reconciliation and mercy and grace. Toward that end, we pray and we thank you and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are two TV events that affect me actually physiologically. I mean, they're so intense that my heart rate goes up and my blood pressure goes up. And I know this because I have a watch that tells me this. Uh, The two events are, first of all, the Seahawks, because every game, really, right down to the last play, it's nerve-wracking and very entertaining. And the other thing that affects me is a show called This Is Us. And the reason it affects me is because I identify with this show a great deal. Within the show, it's a show about a family uh, and their life through generations from the 70s until the present. The couple in this family, the parents, adopted a child. I'm an adopted child. One of the siblings within this family had health issues. My sister had health issues and died uh, at the age of 42, 25 years ago, actually, uh, this month, right around Thanksgiving. The dad died in this show when the kids were still in high school. My dad died when I was in high school. So I can't watch this show without having all these intense reactions inside of me it kind of exposes my own soul and my own story and my own, my own ongoing redemption. But the show also shows how profoundly all of us are shaped by our family history. And so when we come to the New Testament, uh, we open the New Testament with the family history of Jesus. And as we'll see in just a moment, this family history will show us that all of us are able to be people of hope in this world. No matter our story, no matter our background, no matter our failures, we are able to be people of hope, as we'll see in this text. Uh, As the letter begins, Matthew, we'll just note at the outset that Jesus came into history at a very particular time and place. In other words, Matthew opens, the New Testament opens after 400 years of silence with a genealogy in order to say to us, that what we're reading about, what we're reading about Jesus is not Lord of the Rings, it's not Harry Potter, it's not Star Wars, it's not This Is Us. No, Jesus came in the thick of the Roman Empire. 
in a time and place in history, and you can see vestiges of that empire's architecture in, uh, to this day, when you, if you travel throughout Italy, all the way throughout Europe, all the way up into, into uh, England, to the northern part of England, Hadrian's Wall, you can see vestiges of the Roman Empire, and it was into, it was into that empire that Jesus was born. And Bethlehem uh, of Judah is still a place of conflict today regarding occupation. And Jesus was born into a particular family of the tribe of Judah, which qualifies him to be on the throne and serve Israel as a king. The notion of Jesus serving as a king would, of course, be seen as a threat to the occupying powers, as we'll see in the ensuing weeks. And this threat sets up the plot line of Jesus' eventual execution. So Jesus belonged to a particular time and place in a particular family heritage, and this heritage fills us with hope. But we must be filled with hope and embody that hope by doing two things. Number one, blow up assumptions. Number two, invoke patience. These are both very important at this time and place, the end of 2020. We must learn to blow up assumptions about other people and about ourselves. And second, we must learn to invoke patience. We see these things in the genealogy of Christ. So first of all, let's look at what it means to blow up assumptions. A genealogy, of course, is like a resume. And particularly in first century Jewish culture, whether we like it or not, a large part of who we are is determined by our family of origin. And all conventional wisdom would say to you that if family of origin determines your destiny or has a great weight in your destiny, if the savior of the world is going to come to the world, then you want that family of origin to be rather, if I could say this way, squeaky clean, right? If it was the 21st century and we were looking and presenting ourselves to a, uh, to, to a person to show them that we come from a rich family background, we would want to highlight the best schools and uh, the best institutions and all the things that qualify us. And so we'd show people that we went to the right school, that we know the right people, that we have the right family, that we're involved in the right extracurricular activities. But here's the crux of chapter one. The Jesus family is exactly the opposite of that. It's a messed up, broken family. Abraham, for example, who is in this genealogy, and Jacob and Judah, we'll, we'll, we'll go down the list here. Let me just give you a few examples of how messed up this family is. Abraham lied to powerful people about the identity of his wife, allowing others to sleep with his wife in order to protect himself. Jacob was a liar and a cheater, also guilty of favoritism toward the sons of his favorite wife, of whom he had four. Judah hated his dad's favorite brother, whose name was Joseph. He beat him up. He threw him into a pit. He sold him as a slave. Tamar is the first of four women mentioned in this genealogy, which is something in itself because women weren't typically included in genealogies. And in this case, uh, three women named and a fourth implied. God is clearly trying to tell us at the outset here that the story of hope and healing and reconciliation and redemption that God is writing in the world will be written by women as well as men. But if we get back to the story of Tamar, she's here because she gave birth to a son who's in the line of Christ. But the son to whom she gave birth is the union of Tamar's sexual union with her father-in-law who slept with her without knowing her identity because she'd veiled herself as a prostitute, as was the practice of the day. 
And so Judah then slept with his daughter-in-law and gave birth to a son in the line of Christ. The kingly line has this semi-incestuous relationship in it. Another woman involved in prostitution appears in the story. Her name was Rahab. And she's there because she slept with Salmon, who gave birth to Boaz. Boaz married Ruth, who's a Gentile, showing us that this isn't just a Jewish story, but an all-inclusive story. And the genealogy goes on to eventually reveal David, who had several wives. But the line of Christ comes through the woman who was his neighbor, who he used his kingly power to appropriate, and he slept with her and impregnated her, and then eventually had her husband murdered to cover up his adultery and abuse of power. Then he married her, and uh, when she's pregnant, she gives birth to Solomon, (laughs) uh, who is in the line of Christ. So what's the point of all this? I want you to see that this genealogy explodes assumptions on both the right and left that divide us. The right's assumptions often lead to legalism and elitism. In other words, the right often says, look, uh, we do it right, so we're qualified. You do it wrong, so you're disqualified. And only the people who do it right qualify. Work harder, get a job, pay your way, build it yourself. No, (laughs) that's not this story. But that happens within the church sometimes. And people are cut off. I know a man uh, with uh, a failed marriage and the failed marriage led to a broken relationship with his church and ultimately isolation and cynicism toward all of institutional Christianity precisely because when he needed the church most, the church turned her back on him, declaring him to be a failure. I know youth who feel condemned because of their sexual choices. I know one particular one who feels uh, condemned because of her sexual identity. And I will say that theologically left-leaning people are also prone to the same problem. You can suffer wholesale condemnation from people on the left because they've taken a snapshot of you and judge you as an outsider because you don't think properly or speak properly regarding race or sex or politics. This is dangerous. If this genealogy teaches us anything, it's that no snapshot should be used to assess your character because you can, with a snapshot of anyone, disqualify them from the gospel. In other words, if you you took a picture of me at the right moment, you would say, Richard should not be preaching. If I took a picture of Eric at the right moment, I'd say, Richard is disqualified. All, here's a good news this morning, All of us are disqualified. And we'll see why that's good news in just a moment. But the thing is, there's a sad truth in our midst, and that's that many people, presuming that rejection is coming, self-select out of God's story even before there's condemnation from others, we condemn ourselves and we say, I'm not qualified. This is understandable, because it's in us to condemn ourselves. Because if you go clear back to the garden in Genesis chapter uh, three, in the, in the very beginning of the Bible, the, here's the story of Adam. Adam, of course, we all know the story. You know, he eats the apple, he sins. But this is then what we hear. God calls to Adam, where are you? And then Adam says this, I heard your voice, God. I was afraid because I knew I failed. And so I ran and I hid from you. Running and hiding from God because of a sense of shame and failure and unworthiness is in our DNA. And if you don't run, don't worry. 
There's going to be some godly person who will shame you. And then you'll run. This must stop. Because this genealogy, if it tells us one thing, it tells us this. It's not about your snapshots. So did you fail? Congratulations. Welcome to the family of humanity. So stop with the cancel culture already. Stop writing people off because they failed in some way or because they have a blind spot. Stop writing yourself off as unqualified. This genealogy is filled with failures, is filled with bad ideas, is filled with humans, and the reality is that all of us fail, so we're not involved in God's story because we're squeaky clean and holy and righteous. There must be another reason, as we'll see in a minute, but we're not here because we don't fail. But if the theological right leads to this culture of marginalizing people and rejecting people, the theological left leads to a subversion of transformation. In other words, on the left, we have this tendency to celebrate our failures, to celebrate our brokenness, to celebrate our sin and kind of say this, well, that's just the way I am. Jesus came, John 1, 14, full of grace and truth. And the left is often grace without truth in the same way that the right is often truth without grace. And when we know grace without truth then we're stuck in self-destructive patterns. And the patterns become habits, and the habits become a personality that is wallowing, and transformation is subverted. And then we find ourselves saddled with uh, labels that are all too appropriate. He drinks too much. She has an anger problem. He blames others for his problems. Whatever it is, our dark side begins to define us because we refuse to deal with it. And if you look at this, the, 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 the people who are in this genealogy, you see, for example, remember Jacob and uh, uh, then Judah and before Jacob, Abraham. Uh, Jacob had these 12 sons that constituted God's first chosen family. And their vocation was to display the character of God. But when they learned that their uh, sister had been sexually assaulted, they responded by killing all the men of the village in which their sister was assaulted. (laughs) And then they stole the women and the children and the livestock, and then they burned the town to the ground. This is God's chosen family. And they're highly dysfunctional. And Jacob, the patriarch, says to his sons, hey, you shouldn't have done this. And they essentially said, hey, old man, this is who we are. We take revenge. We're violent. We're thieves. And we're chosen. So because we're chosen, we're fine. You're not fine. If you're wallowing and stuck without transformation on an ongoing uh, pattern, that's not okay. Let me put this another way. If I say, you know, I'm chosen by God, or I'm saved, or I'm deeply loved, or I'm complete in Christ, and my correlated statement is, therefore, I don't need to change, I don't understand the gospel. The tragedy in this line of thinking is that we end up linked with terrible things because we receive the grace without allowing the truth to transform us. And I would suggest that's exactly what Constantine did when he brought power grabbing into Christianity and it's been with us ever since. And because of this, Christianity has been linked with terrible things 
like racism and colonialism and anger and deception and unfettered greed and sexual anarchy and nationalism. And the people embodying these sins often never change because all they see is that they're chosen. They've got their ticket stamped. They're on the way to heaven. They're saved by the blood. Nothing needs to change in their lives. This is really toxic and unhealthy. So grace without truth gets us stuck. Truth without grace makes us judgmental. And the paradigm busting in this genealogy is off the map because what it does is it invites people to both truth and grace. Amazing. When you look at the stories embodied in this genealogy, you see that all the people whose stories we know offer us both stories of brokenness and transformation. So for example, Judah sleeps with this veiled woman engaged in prostitution, not knowing she's his daughter-in-law. But later in Judah's story, he essentially offers to lay down his life to save the life of one of his father's favored sons named Benjamin. Judah is not a favored son, but he's moved from bitterness over not being favored to confession to sacrificial love. Judah's story is a story of transformation. It always amazes me that we sing this song, Lion of Judah on the Throne, regarding Jesus. And it's a beautiful song. But when I think about Judah and his sin, I go, really? And then I remember, it's not about the sin. It's not about the snapshot. It's about the movie, the journey towards transformation. David's story is a story of transformation also. It's a story of moving from lust to confession to service to humility to the point where when his own son executes a leadership coup rather than fighting it, David entrusts his future to God. He's not uh, grasping onto power. As he's being run out of town, David says this, well, maybe, maybe it's God's will, and so I'm going to trust God with my future. Rahab was a prostitute by profession and a Gentile. Both of these identity pieces would have disqualified her from any status of blessing among God's people if God's people operated by conventional wisdom. But instead, we see in the book of Joshua that Rahab has more faith than God's chosen people who visit her. And later we see that she's listed among the great faithful people in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, as a woman of exceptional faith. That's Rahab. So let's kind of summarize this first section about blowing, blowing up assumptions by taking it to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 27 and forward. Let me just read a little bit here because this is, you know, so powerful that we remember Here I begin reading in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Consider your calling. What does that mean? Oh, here's what it means. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Who does God choose? The ones with the best resume? No. God has chosen the foolish. God has chosen the weak. God has chosen the outsider. So that... When we see what God has done, 
Well, we, we, kind of, we say this, look what God has done. God has done an amazing thing because God has transformed you from this to this. I shared uh, at the beginning of, of my talk here that my dad died when I was in high school and uh, I stayed home for a year from going away to college to be with my mom. And that year that I stayed home, my first year after high school, was the most difficult year of my life. I was plunged into a state of depression and anxiety. I felt pretty socially isolated. I ended up with some health problems as well. Uh, and then I went away to uh, college. And when I went away to college, <clears throat> I found a, like a grace-filled environment. And uh, I went away feeling like I didn't have any place in God's story because of my own depression, because of my own weakness, because of my own failures, because of my own doubts, because of my own anger at God overtaking my dad. And so I'm away at college hating myself, basically. And then I, I, I kind of fall into this community of grace and I end up playing piano for a Sunday night Bible study. And my friend who was directing Bible study we were chatting one day over lunch, and I'll never forget, it was one of the turning points in my life, this conversation at lunch. My friend said to me, Richard, um, I'm convinced that almost everyone hates themselves. We all know how bad we are. What we need is someone to pour some grace into our lives and show us what we can be and show us that God loves us. Boy, I needed that word. And as I began to receive grace, I remember coming home just for Christmas, I'd only been away 12 weeks. I went back to my old job to visit people at this steel factory where I worked. And when I went back to visit, I, I walked into the office and a friend looked at me and he said, Richard, is that, I can't, I don't even barely recognize you. You look so happy. You look so at peace. What happened to you? That's what he said. This is the power of the gospel to transform us, friends. We are weak. We are foolish. We have doubts. <clears throat> we have struggles. But God is saying, I've chosen you, and now I want to take you on a journey of transformation. And it's that journey that brings us joy. If we're willing to be chosen, but not willing to go on a journey of transformation, we're going to live in, in, in the movie Groundhog Day. And every day is going to be the same thing over and over and over again. We're going to be stuck in our sin. But if we're willing to enjoy the journey of transformation, we kind of become Frodo, right? And we go on this grand adventure saying yes to our calling, saying yes to our gifts, saying yes to confession, saying yes to hospitality and generosity and grace and mercy and growing. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, from glory to glory to glory. That's why we got to blow up our assumptions and accept our failure, but realize that our failure is baseline for radical grace and acceptance that will lead to transformation. Second, to embody hope, we need to invoke patience. <clears throat> In verse 17 of this genealogy, it says that there are 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. 2,000 years of the people of God waiting for Messiah to come. 2,000 years. We're waiting for a vaccine 
Two more months? Six months? Eight months? Uh, we need to invoke patience. And we can learn a lot from this genealogy because it says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption. When the fullness of time had come, God, why did you have to wait 2,000 years? We're never given that answer, but a theme that runs through the Bible is this. We must learn to wait. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The book of Habakkuk, how long will the enemy seem to triumph over the righteous? How long will I suffer? How long will I know neglect? How long will I know doubt? How long will I know fear? How long? It's a great question. And there's some really valuable lessons to learn from this 2,000-year waiting period as we ask the question, how long? First of all, we learn this from this text. God's promises are collective. In other words, none of us will see everything fulfilled in our lifetime. None of us will. All that we hope for, we won't see it all fulfilled. Or if you look at Genesis 15, Abraham asks about the possession of the land that God had promised him in Genesis 12. And God says, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, you, you're asking about the land. Let me, let me tell you, you won't really receive the deed for another 400 years. That means that you, Abraham, will be long gone before this promise is fulfilled, but it's still a promise. Live by it. This is really hard for us <clears throat> because we think that the promises of God apply to us individually. And many of the promises in the scripture are actually collective promises. In other words, our calling is to carry the baton for our section of the race. And that means we use our gifts, we seek justice, we do mercy, we work at following Christ so that our lives increasingly reflect the generosity and wisdom and justice and mercy and hospitality and servanthood that is Christ. And we take this stuff seriously and we play our part. And whether our part means we're here 25 years or 105 years, it means we're healthy. Or we're battling chronic, chronic illness, maybe. Or, or it means we're wealthy. Or it means we're living day by day. Or it means we live to be 105 or it means we die at 25. But regardless, healthy or sick, long life or short, rich or poor, we fix our eyes on Christ and we run our race and we give thanks for the gifts we receive along the way, but we realize that we won't see everything fulfilled in our lifetime. We'll have, we're here for a season, we carry the torch, we pass the torch on. This is hard. We're prone to compare. We're prone to prefer someone else's story to our own. We're prone to choose self-preservation over the risks of obedience to Christ. Yes, it's hard. Read Hebrews eleven thirty nine. It says uh, that all these, in, the, in Hebrews 11, all these faithful people, though commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised. They ran the race. There was joy. There was gratitude. There was movement. But they didn't finish. None of us do. The, there's still promises yet to come. So God's promises are collective. Enjoy the ones you receive fulfillment of and learn to wait. And then the other thing that you see in this waiting period is the transformation of what waiting can be good. Abraham was promised a child in Genesis 12. He waited 25 years. He was 75 when he received the promise. He, he didn't become a dad till he was 100 years old. And in that 25-year period, he learned how to trust God to break into history. 
as God broke in for him over and over and over in, in ways perhaps he would not have learned had he had a child during that period. So in other words, there were things for him to learn without a child, and then God gave him a child. Moses was 40 years in the wilderness, and during that 40-year period, Moses learned that intimacy with God is more important than influence. So that when God then did give him influence, he was ready to handle it. Joseph waited 25 years for the fulfillment of a vision that God had given him in a dream. And in that vision, Joseph was in a position of authority to save his family. But before that dream was fulfilled, he was beaten by his brothers, sold into slavery. And then as a slave, he was framed for sexual assault and imprisoned. And then as a prisoner... He was faithful to serve the other prisoners who then forgot about him when they were released ahead of him. And Joseph learned what we all need to learn today. Life does not begin when your promise is fulfilled. Life does not begin when this uh, uh, coronavirus ends. Life does not begin when you get the promotion. Life does not begin when you get married. Life does not begin when children leave the home. Life does not begin when you retire. Life is now. So here we are, all of us waiting, waiting for healing, waiting for direction, waiting for a vaccine so we can meet together again, waiting for a breakthrough in relationship, waiting for movement on the racism front, waiting to retire, waiting to get married, waiting to have children, waiting, waiting, waiting. What does God say? In the fullness of time. So what do I do whilst I'm waiting? (laughs) Well, the answer is found in Numbers 9. Numbers 9 is where God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and God says to Israel, look, uh, here you are in the wilderness, and I'm going to guide you. So when I'm going to be a flame at night and a cloud in the day, and when the cloud moves, you move. And when the cloud doesn't move, you don't move. And then God says it like 10 different ways. To, to say to people, you have one responsibility. When I go, go. But when I stay, stay. I'll be with you. Look for me. Respond to me. Love me. Follow me. Live in fellowship with me. All of us are waiting. But I'm going to suggest to you that if we begin using as soon as language too much... That's a sign that we're disengaging from the present. As soon as we can meet together again, as soon as the coronavirus crisis ends, as soon as there's a change politically, as soon as something happens, then life begins. No, life's today. Jesus taught us this in Matthew chapter 6, where he seeks to free us from concerns about the future. He concludes with each day has enough trouble of its own. And it's his way of saying, here you are, live here. This is the only day you have to practice gratitude, to be present with another. Are you ready? Are you perfect? No, you're not perfect. But this is your day. And so live now, use your gifts now, serve now, give now, celebrate now, practice gratitude now, forgive now, confess now. This is your day. You're not waiting, you're living. A promise is yet to come, but you're living now. Live. As broken people, live. As gifted people, live. As forgiven people, live. So then, 
If you've blown up assumptions and invoked patience, you're able to create hope. One of the things that makes this season so dark is the reality of our families not being able to be together. We feel intensely isolated. And I just want to close by sharing a little bit of my own story so that you know that hope can break through in this isolation. I uh, was one of those adopted kids who never, never really looked for my adoptive parents. I never really did that. And then uh, I went on uh, Ancestry.com because my kids gave me that as a gift. And I filled out the thing, you know. And then I'll never forget uh, being in an airport maybe a year ago or so, year and a half. And I got an email from Ancestry.com and it said, you have a significant match. And so I went to the website and I looked. I thought, what is this significant match? And then it said, uh, there's a 99.99% certainty that this particular match is a parent, one of your parents. And I thought, wow. I mean, something kind of happened in me. Something, a longing to know my biological story. It was there. I had never been there, really. This kind of woke something up in me. So I sat with it for about a week, and then I wrote an email to that, the, that person who's supposed to be my parent. It's a, like a, not even an email, a message to Ancestry that mediates this stuff, right? And it's a long story, and please don't respond. I don't need counseling here, but let, let me, I'll just say, here's what happened. I, I never heard back. So I wrote to this name that is representative of my biological DNA, and I never heard back. And so this is one of the reasons when I watch This Is Us that I'm kind of sometimes weeping even because there's an unresolved piece of my story. Does that make sense? Like, I still don't know. It's 18 months later, still don't know. But I know that person is there. And so sometimes in my darkest moments, I can be like this. I am completely rootless. And let me tell you, for me, for me, that's why Matthew 1 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. You know why? Because it says in uh, Romans chapter 4 that Abraham is our father. And then it says in the book of Hebrews that God's desire and plan, the whole plan wasn't just to get you into heaven. No, no, no. God's plan to create a vast family of sons and daughters so that Christ is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. And actually reading Matthew because of my story brings me to tears because I'm like this, I have a family. I have a family. And that, that is for me the greatest joy 
of the gospel. I don't know my bi- biological family story. I don't know it. It's this gigantic question mark and mystery. But I have a family, an eternal family, because of Christ. And so do you. So let's blow up our assumptions. Let's invoke patience. And let's celebrate the reality that no matter our family story, no matter our family dysfunction, no matter our sense of isolation, we have a family. We not only have a family, we are a family. Brothers and sisters committed together to one another in order that hope might live in the world. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you've called us to be people of hope and that we're invited to embody hope. And our prayer, Father, is that we would live as your sons and daughters in a healthy family system that though filled with problems is on a trajectory toward union that involves confession and truth-telling and and forgiveness, all because your spirit is hovering among us. May that be the story of your family, we the people of God, as we follow you. And we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.